we're talking about revival, great outpourings of the Holy Spirit across history. We're believing God to come and do it again. But one of the big misconceptions about revival that I want us to focus in on in this, our eighth session together, is the realization that as wonderful as we all think revival is, everyone is not going to share our passion about it, and revivals are going to be persecuted. They're never going to be popular with everyone. If you're waiting to have a popular revival that everyone approves of and everyone sanctions and everyone is happy with, first of all, you're not going to see it. And if you do see it, it's probably going to be the Antichrist and has nothing to do with God. Revivals are always persecuted. They're always criticized. Charles Finney once said, a revival that is not persecuted is a revival that was not sent by God. Revivals will always be controversial. And many times they will come in unexpected packages. One of the most amazing photographs I've ever seen was several months back. I'll never forget it. It was a photograph, I saw it in England, and it was about 20 German shepherds, big German shepherd dogs, that were lined up in single file sitting at obedience and walking down the line in front of the German shepherds was a big fluffy cat. And underneath the picture were these words, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And that was kind of a funny. Well, I was intrigued by that picture of these gigantic German police dogs sitting in attention, everybody looking down, ears cocked forward, eyes intent, and here's this big fluffy black and white cat just walking along right in front of them. And I started doing some research, and I found out that that was not an accident, that that photograph was actually taken at one of the premier police dog training facilities in the world. And that these dogs were the best of the best, some of the most expensive police dogs that there are that were going to go to police agencies around the world, places like the FBI and New York City Police Department. These dogs were bred. I mean, they were conceived and bred from police dogs that were the best of the best. I mean, they came into life carrying a genetic code that was predisposed to being police dogs. They had been raised to be police dogs. From the time they were puppies, they had grown up. They had gone through the most rigorous training that police dog trainers could give to a dog. But that photograph was the final examination before graduation. Before these dogs, after having been bred and raised and trained and trained and trained, before they were released, this was the final examination. And the trainers would take all the dogs in the graduating class, line them all up in single file line, make them all sit, and would tell them, however they tell them, you're to sit here, you're not to move, you're not to bark, you're not to growl. You're not to do anything until I come back here to get you. 
you're here until I tell you otherwise. And then all the trainers go away. They leave and go away into a building to watch the dogs on closed-circuit television. And the dogs are just kind of sitting there doing what they're supposed to do. And then enters the cat. The cat's part of the faculty. The cat grew up around police dogs. The cat's all part of the game. And the cat's job, the reason the cat gets fed, the reason the cat lives, is the cat is the final exam. And this cat is to walk down the line in front of the German shepherds and sniff their noses and swish up against them and say, and rub me behind my ear, please. Because the cat has grown up loving German shepherds. He has absolutely no fear of them at all. And the trainers are watching the cat, and they're watching the dog. And any dog that growls, any dog that barks, any dog that stands up, any dog that has any kind of aggression toward the cat, that dog flunks. That's the end of the line. Because at that point, they understand that this dog was bred for discipline. He was bred for obedience. And he's grown up. He's never known anything else in this dog's life except obedience and discipline and doing what he's been told. But if he takes any kind of aggressive action against the cat, what that indicates is down deep in his heart, he's still a dog. And that nature down deep in his heart is still there, and that nature is capable of overruling everything the dog has been taught and knows to do. And the dog is immediately disqualified. And one of the things about revivals is many times in the midst of revival, God will send the cat to really expose what's down deep in people's hearts. God will send a cat to bring to the surface what people really are and what people really want and what people really believe. I mean, they can say all the right things, do all the right things, give all the right evidence, but let the glory of God come, let the heavens open and the presence of God comes, and all of a sudden you find out. You find out where people really are. I mean, I remember when I was a pastor, I had two people in my church sat right up in the front They were my cheerleaders. They thought I was the best thing since sliced bread. They were there early, stayed late, worked, gave, tithed, were a part of everything. We were some of the most faithful people that I had. But then in January of 1993, revival came, and the glory of God came. The presence of God became tangible in the church, and the windows of heaven opened. And the next Sunday, they they weren't on the front row. They were about halfway to the back and they weren't coming to the meetings and the next Sunday they were on the back row and the next Sunday they were gone altogether. They wouldn't answer their phone. They wouldn't come to the door. I couldn't catch them. I didn't understand what the deal was. And then after they were gone from the church and I didn't really miss them because revival had come and if I had to choose between God and people it wasn't much of a big vote for me. I mean, we want God, and if you don't, you know, then we love you, we bless you, we care for you, we want good things for you, but we're not going where you go. And 
after the revival came and they disappeared and we lost them and I was sorry. You know what I found out? They weren't even married. She was married to another man and they were just living together, sitting on the front row of the church. I mean, they were my biggest cheerleaders. Bring the Bible, work hard. And the tithe check that he was putting in the offering every week, that tithe check, I knew he was a businessman. I didn't know what kind of business he had. I found out the tithe check that he was given is he was giving off the income of a topless bar that he owned in Orlando. Now they're living in adultery and he's running a strip joint and they're my biggest cheerleaders until revival came. I mean, I don't know what that says about my ministry. <laughs> I don't know what that says about the anointing. I don't know what that says about the glory that I thought was in the church before revival came. But I mean, they were just totally delighted with all of it until the heavens opened. And all of a sudden, you see the content of their heart. I mean, they couldn't sit in that presence of God living together in adultery. He couldn't write that check anymore off his prophets, off his topless bar in Orlando. Hello. You see, revival comes like a cat. And it exposes stuff. It brings to light the hidden thing. And that's why revivals are always going to be persecuted. Because had one of those police dogs gone after the cat, if the dog could talk, you could sit down and interview the dog and he could probably give you 25 good reasons that he should have gone after that cat. It's a cat. I'm a dog. That cat offended me. That cat insulted me. That cat sniffed my nose. No cat sniffs my nose. I was offended at that cat. I was justified in growling or barking or whatever. No, he'd been told to sit still and keep his mouth shut and obey what the handler had told him. But it's amazing that revival, lots of times it'll come and it'll be the cat. And the greater the glory, the bigger the cat becomes. And it's always heartbreaking but amusing at the same time. At how many dogs that'll sit there in perfect obedience to Jesus will show their teeth, start growling and howling and barking and chasing the cat when revival comes and you would have never known what was really in their hearts. Every move of God will be persecuted. Revival is the revelation of God's glory in the earth. And when God's glory is revealed in the earth, let me tell you something, the devil is not going to like it. When the kingdom of heaven becomes the kingdom of God, and we looked at that in our earlier session, that that's what revival is, is when the environment of the heavenly realm comes into the earthly realm and becomes tangible where people experience it. When the kingdom of heaven comes into the earthly realm and becomes the kingdom of God, that's the thing that will throw the devil into fits of rage. Because when the kingdom of God begins to manifest in the earth, it begins to tear down everything the devil has set up, destroy him. I mean, this may come kind of as a radical thing for some of us here this morning, but the devil is not really afraid of the church. He's not really afraid of the church. We can have all the bake sales and car washes and rummage sales that we want to have. We can come together and have some good services and we can enjoy going to church. He doesn't like it. But he doesn't waste a lot of ammunition on it, except when the anointing comes and the glory comes and the revelation of the glory of God comes 
And that's when he aims every bit of his artillery against it because he knows when a church begins getting over into the realms of God and the anointing and the glory and the power and the presence of God begins to come in to the house of God and people are going to begin to change. The reality is he knows his stronghold is broken and people are going to get out of jail that he's put them in and they're going to get free. They're going to change. And the kingdom of darkness is going to suffer damage when the kingdom of light comes. And the glory will always, like the cat and the German shepherds, begin to reveal all kinds of nasty things. And it's that nastiness that results in the persecution because the enemy does not want the work that he has established in people's hearts individually or in churches corporately or in a region or a nation disturbed in open heavens do just exactly that. There are two kinds of persecution that come. There's a persecution that comes from the world and people that hate God and that's the best thing that revival can ever have. Persecution that comes from the world is like pouring gasoline on a fire. It only intensifies why is the church in China as strong as it is? Because of persecution, of prison sentences, of death sentences, of harassment is the reason that the church has thrived in China. I remember hearing someone say that they had gone to China and someone from a Christian publication had interviewed one of the leaders of the underground church in China from his prison cell. And this man had spent many, many years, many years in prison, sometimes in isolation, only because of his faith in Jesus. And this article that I read, one of the leaders of the Chinese underground church said to him, when you go back to America, pray for us that God will continue to bless the church in China. But he said, please, be absolutely sure that no one prays for us that the persecution will stop. Because if the persecution ever ceases, the church in China will become just like the church in America. People in the Chinese church have marveled and said the mystery that we do not understand about America is how can you have so many churches and have so little of God? I mean, I haven't even counted how many churches we drive by just to get from where you live and where I'm staying to get to this meeting. Of how many church buildings do we drive by in this town that are sitting there? They're all around us. They're next door. They're down the street. They're up the street, down the road, up the road. I mean, they're everywhere. And yet, here we are today in a nation that is coming unraveled because of the consequences of sin. I have seen something in America in recent years, and I want to contrast that a bit to what we talked about in our previous section over the old rerun of Gunsmoke and how that here's Miss Kitty and Matt Dillon and Kitty never got a ring. and I mean, everybody understands what was going on there, but yet they had a reverence and they had a respect and they had an honor for the Bible and for God and the things of God. 
Whether people were experiencing individually in their lives or not was not the issue. There was a general understanding that in this nation we are a godly nation. We are a Christian nation. We're not a Buddhist nation, a Hindu nation. We're not a Muslim nation. That all men were created equal, yes. And everyone's faith is protected under the Constitution. But the moral fabric of our nation is that we honor the Judeo-Christian heritage for which this nation was birthed. We understood that. But in recent years, I find a shifting of people that literally hate God. And I've never seen that before. And it's in the media of references being made to things about the church and Christians and the Bible that the media would never dream of saying those kinds of things against Islam under the threat of jihad and death. They would never do that. But Christians, on the other hand, Pastors, preachers, evangelists are portrayed as Elmer Gantry. I mean, they're homosexuals, they're pedophiles, they're adulterers, they're hypocrites, they're only in it for the money. I mean, we've given them plenty of ammunition to work with. But there's a mindset out there today of hostility, of hostility toward the church, hostility toward Christians, hostility toward the Bible. And that's the reason the church has caved in to that pressure and we've sought to become more seeker-sensitive and seeker-friendly. And we don't want to do anything. We don't want to say anything. We don't want to preach anything that is in any way offensive. I mean, I shared with you being in a city last week where they'd taken the cross down off of the church. Why? We don't want to be offensive to anyone. We don't want to look exclusive. I mean, the whole idea of Let's just come to church and be happy. Let's come to church and be casual. Let's come to church and just lay back, kick back. I know of a church that does a Sunday morning brunch in the back of the sanctuary with food and juice and coffee and chips and sandwiches and fruit that while the service is going on, people feel free just to get up I mean, just right in the middle of the sermonette for Christianettes. Somebody will think, well, I need a sandwich. And they'll just get up and go back to the back, pick up a sandwich, get a cup of coffee, check their email right in the middle of the service. We want everyone to be happy. We want everyone to be comfortable, you see. Because we do not want to be persecuted. We want to be accepted. And our need for acceptance in the church has now overridden our desire to walk before God in integrity and purity of heart and be pleasing unto God because of the fear of persecution. Let me let everyone here understand this morning, when revival comes, there are people that aren't going to like it. Your brother-in-law may not like it. Your brother may not like it. Your sister may not. Your mama may not like it. Your daddy may not like it. Your kids may not like it. Your grandkids may not like it. Your boss may not like it. They may not like you for being a part of it. You see, my perspective is a little bit different from many other perspectives because I preach the gospel all over the world. And it's a heartbreaking thing for me to stand on a platform in India and preach the gospel of Jesus is the only way to salvation. 
Jesus is not one more of 330 million gods that you can just add him to your list, right, with the bugs and the sun and the moon and the grass and the trees and the cows and the dogs and snakes and everything else that's a God. Just put Jesus on your list. It's a difficult thing for me to stand on the platform and preach a gospel to people that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he offers salvation because of his blood that he shed on the cross. And he is the only way to salvation. And watch thousands and thousands and thousands of people get up off the ground where they were sitting or standing and run to the front. I've seen them just come running by the thousands to the front and gather there. And we lead them in a sinner's prayer. When we lead them in a sinner's prayer, they renounce all other gods and accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And I explain the cost of that to them before they come. And it's a difficult thing for me to be standing there on a platform in front of thousands and thousands and thousands of people that are asking Jesus into their heart, knowing full well that those people, some of them are going to get their houses burned down, they're going to be shut out of their families, those women are going to go home and be beaten half to death by their Hindu husbands, rejected and despised and cut off and cast out of their families, fired from their jobs and lose everything because they came to that meeting and they came forward and they prayed that prayer and they rejected the Hindu gods and made Jesus the Lord of their lives? It's heart-rending to me. I mean, our prayer partners get all up excited and people get blessed when they hear the report of what happened in the nation like India. I've been there six times and going back again at the first of the year. When they come by the multitude, it breaks my heart because I know these people out here that are doing this, that some of them are going to die. Some are going to be beaten and injured because of the prayer that I lead them in of salvation. I mean, we just came back from Pakistan. We came back from preaching the gospel in the Islamic Republic of Pakistan, right under the nose of the Taliban in Karachi. The week after we left, the Taliban burst into a home of people that had been in our meetings and shot up the place with automatic weapons as Christians were having a prayer meeting. And no one was killed, but they came in to kill them all because of the influence of the gospel, you see. Persecution from the world in reaction to the revelation of the glory of God all that does is put fuel on the fire. God has called the church to be salt and light. And when the church loses its salt, it's not good for anything anymore except Jesus said to be trampled under the foot of people. And yet we don't want to be salt. We want to fit in because we want to blunt the edge of anyone that would criticize us and we want everyone to like us. Listen. If we're going to live for Jesus, not everybody's going to like us. If we're going to walk in the glory of God, everybody's not going to approve. If we're going to contend for revival, there are going to be people that are going to oppose revival because we represent the cat that brings out the dimension inside of people that would ordinarily remain undercover. Hello? They're not reacting to us. They're reacting to the glory of God operating in our lives. Paul actually addressed that 
it is because of the glory that we're persecuted. I mean, don't take it personally. It's the anointing. Now, some Christians do stupid things that deliberately go out to offend people, which they shouldn't do. We're not suggesting that. But my brothers and sisters, when we walk in the glory of God and the anointing of God and contend for heaven's best, it is going to produce a reaction. When persecution comes against revival from the earth and from the world of people that hate God, despise God, want nothing to do with it, that's a good thing because that increases. But the deadly part of persecution is when persecution comes from the church. Persecution from NBC or CBS or CNN or whatever of revival, all those things. I mean, Charles Finney once said that he didn't care what anybody wrote about him in the media. The only thing he wanted them to get right is the place and time of the meeting, if you're going to write about this. But it's when the persecution of revival comes from within the church, of people that say they're Christian. That's the thing that aborts revivals. The spirit of religion is the greatest enemy of revival. It's not persecution by the government, but it's persecution by the spirit of religion. And the spirit of religion, I like to define the spirit of religion as being religious activity that has been substituted for the pursuit of the presence of God. And I believe that's what God was rebuking Israel for in Jeremiah 2 where he said, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have built for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It is religious activity. It is religious teaching. It is religious busy work that is substituted for the pursuit of encountering God in His holiness in His wonderful beauty and holy presence and power and anointing that changes and transforms lives. It's just easier to have these other things. Some people say, I know what that scripture is talking about, and I know what the spirit of religion is. That's the Baptist. That's the Methodist. That's the Catholics. That's the Presbyterians. That's the Episcopalians. Some of the strongest spirit of religion that I've ever run into has been in charismatic Pentecostal churches where people said they wanted God, they wanted God, they wanted glory, they wanted the anointing, they wanted the gifts. They didn't want any of that. They'd say they did. It was part of their creed. It was part of their identity. It was mentioned in the yellow page ad that they had in the phone book about their church trying to get people to come about being full gospel charismatic, put little doves on there, and put little flames of fire and all of these little logos trying to identify. We don't have time this morning to chase that rabbit too far into the bar patch or we won't get done with this particular session by the appointed time. But beloved, I'll tell you, I have personally witnessed in charismatic Pentecostal churches people doing everything that would go on in the biggest honky-tonk in your town on Friday night, involved in it. I've seen it. And yet, hallelujah, glory to God, come to church and dance and beat a tambourine and put up their hands and assume the position and say amen and shout glory to God at all the right times and then just full of the devil. 
Because you see, we have to understand the glory and we have to understand that when we encounter God, we're encountering the presence of Almighty God. Do you understand the sacred, holy privilege of that? I mean, do you know how big the universe is? How many know how big the universe is? I thought that. That's why I came to tell you this morning. I read recently on space.com that scientists believe now that the universe is 156 billion, billion, not miles, but 156 billion light years across. Now let me tell you what a light year is. A light year is the distance traveled by light in a given year. Light travels at 186,262 miles per second. Let me say that again. 186,262 miles per second times 60 seconds in a minute times 60 minutes in an hour times 24 hours in a day times 365 and a quarter days in a year, times 156 billion years. You don't have enough ink in your pen to put enough zeros to measure how far that is. And yet the Bible says that God made all the stars and knows them all by name. That's our Heavenly Father today. And we must treat Him with honor and respect and the holiness to which he is so rightly deserving today because he loves us with said love, loving kindness and grace. You see, if I were God, I would have made 11 commandments and not 10. I mean, there would be a copy of the 11 commandments. I would have used the 10 that he used, but I would have added an 11th. The 11th commandment for me was, thou shalt not mess with me. Thou shalt not mess with me. Right after thou shalt not kill and steal and have other images and worship other gods and lie and all that. I'd have had the 11th. Thou shalt not mess with me. But people figure that out down the road anyway, that we don't mess with him. The glory of God is holy and precious, and yet the spirit of religion wants to substitute other things for the glory. The biggest characteristic of the spirit of religion is it is viciously opposed to the demonstration of the supernatural power of God. I mean, let the supernatural power of God be released. And I mean, they're ready to have a meeting and kick somebody out. I mean, I remember in the early days of our traveling ministry 15 years ago when revival first came. I used to have them get up all the time and just walk right out of the meeting, slam the door, headed for the parking lot with the presence of God. They don't do that anymore. Why? Because they're all gone now. But back in those days, there were some that hadn't heard. They used to just get up and huff and puff and snort, paw the ground and head for the door, mad as mad could be. And you'd look at them and say, what's wrong? I don't know. Why? It wasn't me. I was just the cat. I was just the cat. The presence of God had come. And all of a sudden, all this stuff comes bubbling up, you see, because they don't want any demonstration of the glory, of the anointing, of the presence of God. They want a nice prepackaged religious meeting. Hello. 
You see, the Bible says that the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Paul told the church at Corinth, I didn't come to you with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And when the power of God, the glory of God, the anointing of God comes into a meeting, I'm telling you, the spirit of religion has convulsions. It's the cat. In the Old Testament, this spirit was responsible for the persecution and the murder of many of the prophets that God sent to his people. I mean, people want to go around. I ran into somebody a couple of weeks ago. They said, I'm prophet so-and-so. And it's like, if you're really, I didn't say this, but I mean, I wanted to think to myself, if you're really a prophet, I need to step back so I don't get hit by the rocks because they kill prophets. They kill real prophets. If you ever find a prophet that's popular, hello, you better look hard because that was the problem in the book of Jeremiah is Jeremiah was prophesying the word of the Lord to Israel and part of the people he was prophesying to were the prophets. God was saying these people prophesy out of the imaginations of their own heart to keep the people happy and to appease people. And God says, I'm like up to here with it because all the prophets had gotten together and they were prophesying good things, good things, good things, good things. And Jeremiah stands alone saying the word of the Lord says God's going to do this and these guys are wrong and God's like up to here with all these prophets prophesying out of their own heart, their own imaginations in order to please the people. You see, the spirit of religion will always oppose the true prophetic. That's why most of the prophets in the Old Testament died and they were persecuted. Find me a 21st century prophet that's not in trouble with a lot of people. The reason they're not in trouble is they're not bringing a true word from God. Now they don't have to go out and be weird and wacky and stupid and do goofy stuff and then think because people don't go along with it. That makes them somehow persecuted. They may be persecuted because they're wrong. Hello? I mean, millions of dollars were made in 1997, 98, 99 by prophets and prophetic ministries getting everybody ready for the meltdown of Y2K. When January 1st came and the world wasn't plunged into darkness because of Y2K at the turn of the millennium, they just plan another prophetic conference and sell some more tickets and keep on going. Well, they were wrong. And I'm not persecuting prophets this morning. I'm just waiting on a generation of prophets that's humble enough before God that they'll just stand up and say, I missed it. I blew it. I'm sorry. I've asked God to forgive me. I ask you to forgive me. And I ask you to pray for me that God will keep me, that I not miss him again, that my heart was right. But let's move on. But the true prophetic word of God is a cat that is going to be persecuted. It sets off a reaction in people. In the Gospels, the spirit of the religion was the thing that was driving the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who became the wooden seas and the couldn't seas. I mean, these were the scholars of the word. These were the teachers of the Old Testament that was all about Jesus and the coming of the Messiah. And when Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, stood before him, they tried to kill him. Why? Because of the spirit of religion. They came to all of his meetings. The front row of Jesus' meetings was filled with the Pharisees, Sadducees, wouldn't sees, and couldn't sees. 
Do you realize that there are people today that were in Jesus' meetings, seated in the front row, witnessing every miracle that he ever did, that are in hell today? They're in hell. They heard him teach. They heard him preach. They watched him do signs and wonders and miracles and persecuted it and rejected it. And today they're in hell. Why? Because of the spirit of religion. In the early church, the persecution that came against the church that had just been birthed was birthed because of the spirit of religion. What are the characteristics? Let's look at them very quickly. The first characteristic of the spirit of religion is it always seeks to usurp and replace the ministry of the Holy Spirit with something else. And interestingly enough, my dear brothers and sisters, what the spirit of religion often tries to substitute for the Holy Spirit is not always a bad thing. You see, the worst enemy of the best thing is usually a good thing. The worst enemy of God's best is usually a good idea that somebody has. The good is usually the worst enemy of the things of God. That let's just do this. That would be good too. We'll add that on. We'll add that in. And usually the work of God, the Holy Spirit, gets forced out the door. The second characteristic of the spirit of religion is it despises supernatural manifestations. It hates healing. It hates miracles, signs, wonders, prophetic, despises these things. It's usually very unemotional. Let's not get over into fanaticism. Let's not get too emotional. Let's don't let people get worked up into emotional frenzy and get unbalanced. Some of the most unbalanced people I've ever seen in my life are people at the Super Bowl. You want to see unbalanced people go to the World Series. Go to the NBA final game and I'll show you unbalanced people. I mean, do you realize how many hundreds of millions of people get unbalanced over American Idol on TV? I mean, the whole nation comes to a halt. Who is going to be the next American Idol? And we watch and hold our breath to see what Simon is going to say. Hello? But yet come to church... Never move, never smile, never show any emotion. And if you do, well, that's some kind of bizarre, fanatical, religious experience. And the reality is, is that's the spirit of religion. Many times the spirit of religion will be preoccupied with being theologically correct. Now let me be clear. We stay with the Word of God. We love the Word of God. We teach the Word of God. We believe the Word of God. We honor the Word of God. We read it. We memorize it. We live by the Word of God. Hello. No one is suggesting otherwise. One of the big dangers in this moment in the church is the fact that the Word of God has declined. It's not preached anymore. It's not read anymore. It's not studied anymore. I mean, there are people out there right now in places of leadership in the church that are actually saying, we need a fresh Word from God. That's code for not using yesterday's word. Yes, we need a now word from God. Yes, we honor the prophets. Yes, we honor the prophetic revelation. Of course we do. But my dear brothers and sisters, we don't depart from the word of God. I've heard CDs recently of speakers telling people in church, you just need to lay down your Bibles for a season. You just need to put your Bible up and put it aside for a time. 
And you just need to soak in the presence of God. You need to soak and just enjoy intimacy with God. Hello. Beloved, I believe in soaking. I believe in intimacy. I believe in fellowship with God. I mean, I believe in doing carpet time and soaking and being filled and touched and impartation and the anointing, all these wonderful things. But it just seems like the more time I spend in this book, the better the soaking becomes for me. And there are so many today that, I mean, teachers. I'm not talking about some flaky person out here. Some, I'm talking about respected ministers and respected teachers that are now departing from this book and are telling people as such. One of the things they're teaching right now is the coming revival is going to be different from all the other revivals of the past. God's going to do new things that He's never done before. He's going to bring new revelations that He's never brought before. I understand that at one level, and I accept that at one level, but at another level, does that mean we just throw the door wide open and say anybody that walks in and says, well, this is what the Lord showed me. This is what the angel that came and visited me and I had donuts with this morning told me. I mean, at what point do we use the Bible, God's Word, as a measuring stick? See, I believe we need the Bible and the Spirit. The Spirit of religion says, well, we'll just take the Bible and forget the Spirit. And that's what the Pharisees and Sadducees did that made them the wouldn't sees and couldn't sees, is they had the Word, but they had no anointing. They had no glory. They had no presence. They had no relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. Their only way of relating to God was by something written. And that's why they killed the very Messiah that had come to save them. It's very exclusive, very prideful, very rule-centered and controlled. And it's a dangerous, dangerous spirit. Let me just say it right up front. Every person here, myself included, has been seduced by it. Every one of us here have been influenced by the spirit of religion. Every one of us here today, and anyone that listens to this by CD or whatever, we must recognize that every one of us at any given moment in time is vulnerable to being seduced by a religious spirit if we are not careful. You see, the problem with deception is deceived people don't know they're deceived. That's the problem with deception. How many people have you ever met in your life, in your walk with God, that came up to you and said, Good morning, how you doing? My name's John, I'm deceived. <laughs> you ever met anyone like that? Every one of them that I've ever met, they genuinely believe they're right. I mean, these suicide bombers that blow themselves up trying to kill infidels, they really believe that the moment that bomb goes off, they go to paradise to spend eternity with 75 virgins. And that's why they do it. Man, are they in for a big surprise. I mean, Mohammed Atta that flew one of the planes into the Twin Towers on September 11th, he'd get more people saved than Billy Graham if he could be here today. Boy, talking about hitting a theological brick wall and having your theology changed. I mean, detonate the bomb and go to paradise with the 75 virgins for all of eternity as a martyr for Allah? Bomb goes off and, hello, what a shock. I've never met a person that was deceived that realized that they were deceived. And so all of us must understand that we can be deceived 
by a spirit of religion if we're not careful. That's the reason that all great revivals are persecuted by the people that God used in the last revival. The people that God uses in one revival usually become the most outspoken critics of the people that God uses in the next revival. Why? Because God's using somebody else in a different way than God used me. And why has God moved on? I mean, everybody understand. I'm the one that God needs to use in revival. And now God's gone out and picked up somebody else and he's using somebody else. I mean, you know, I was available. Why did God go out and get somebody else? And it's motivated by jealousy, pride, arrogance. And it has been the source of the abortion of many revivals. How do we fight the spirit of religion? By walking in humility and forgiveness and love. Humility, forgiveness, and love. Three of the biggest things the devil hates the most. It's when people forgive, when people walk in humility, and people walk in love. Because his biggest weapons are the opposites of those things. Bitterness, pride, arrogance. I'm always right. Everybody look at me. Everybody listen to me. Can't teach me anything. I've got it all. I am the epitome of everything God wants a man or a woman to be. I got the whole package. There's nothing deficient in me. That becomes the seed that grows the crop of the spirit of religion. Amen.